We're beginning a, uh, a new series this morning in the Epistle to the Ephesians. So I would encourage you to uh, turn there. And we'll, this morning we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. No telling how long this series is going to go. I mean, it might last, you know, 20, 25 weeks. It might last a couple years. It's a... Uh, it's an awfully powerful book. Especially when you get to the first chapter and the last chapter, for some reason, are the two that strike me the most. The first chapter is so chock full of theology that you can hardly get a word out before you have to sit and talk about it for a day. And then you get to the last chapter, and it's all about spiritual warfare. And we never talk about spiritual warfare. So why not spend six months doing that? See, you, you, get, you get the problem, don't you? So, okay. So I'm not quite sure how long it's going to take. But by the grace of God, I trust that we'll get through the first two verses this morning. So, let me, uh, let me read those verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. (coughs) Our Father, we are uh, excited about beginning this uh, magnificent epistle of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the great working of your Spirit in and through his mind and heart and soul, given not only to the Ephesians and those in the surrounding areas, but to countless millions of Christians over the centuries since. And we thank you that this day, we have the opportunity once again to be exposed to this very same truth that you spoke to this man. And we ask that what you spoke to him, and that he spoke to others, might now come to us, and change us, enlighten us, and cause us by your grace to be more like Christ as a result. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. If uh, you follow baseball at all, or ever have followed baseball at all, uh, you have to be uh, familiar with the uh, name Cal Ripken Jr. Uh, Cal Ripken uh, played for the uh, uh, Orioles uh, for many, many years. And uh, in 1995, he broke a uh, decades-long record of uh, consecutive baseball games set by Lou Gehrig. Uh, Lou Gehrig played uh, with Babe Ruth, so you can get a sense for uh, uh, how long ago that was. He played 2,130 games in a row just to break the record and then kept playing. And it was not without great difficulty at points. I mean, you know, you can imagine over uh, a span of as many seasons as it takes to play over a couple thousand games that he had certain injuries. Once in 1993, he twisted his knee so badly that when he got up in the morning, he informed his wife Kelly, he says, I, I don't know if I could play today. He says, I can't even put any weight on my knee whatsoever. And she said, well, she says, well, maybe you could just go to the game and, and, and play the first inning and then come out. He says, no! He says, if I play, I play the whole game. And that's it. And she said something like, just checking, dear. Well, he did go, and he did play, played the whole game, 
and as we know, uh, ended up uh, ultimately uh, setting the record. In fact, Cal Ripken Jr. played 99.2% of all the innings that the Orioles played from the time his, his uh, stretch started until he missed his first game. That's an extraordinary extraordinary percentage. See, he had committed himself to face all the challenges as they came and went head-on to the best of his ability, no matter how overwhelming they might seem at the time. Now, you and I both understand what it means to face challenges, too. They come to us, and some don't seem like such a big deal. Some of them really seem as though they loom much larger than our, our capacities and our resources. And how can we possibly overcome them? We, we, we face shortages, and we wonder whether or not God can somehow uh, come up with the things that we need. Will he really come through? Some of us deal with families in which there are so many problems, they're so long-standing. Some of them run through generations, we wonder if they could ever change. Or we work in companies that are, that are so polluted by the cultural environment that they don't do anything honestly. They treat people poorly. And we wonder, how can they survive? Or how can we survive in that environment? Sometimes there are issues of of health and of aging, things we cannot change. Things we see in our own bodies happening that we are powerless to turn back. Of course, it's not just external stuff, it's internal stuff too. Stuff in our own hearts and souls that we face that, that often loom large. Who has not looked at their own heart and seen besetting sins continue year after year after year after year? Who has not faced the persistent doubts that that the things God requires of us to to, to work out in our families, in our workplaces, in our own lives, that we, we just don't have the capacity for it? We're just not cutting it. Which of us has not felt our own heart's resistance to the gospel itself, and to the freedom of living the way God calls us to humbly live before him. And these challenges, whether they're outside or whether they're inside, you know, they, they come to us, they loom there, and they, they make us want to cower. Some of them make us want to run. We want to basically say to God, you know, this is just too much. It's too much. I can't do it. Take it away. What are we supposed to do with that stuff? Well, you know, Paul's a man just like us. He faced all sorts of challenges as well. And literally, in these introductory words to the Ephesians, he lays out something that I think is quite remarkable. And that is that he answers this problem of how we're to face our daily challenges. And he simply puts it in these words that you would not... You wouldn't naturally get out of it when you read it. But I trust that I'll be able to show you that it's true. That God does supply us every single day with the things we need to face the challenges of that day. Paul begins this letter the same way he begins almost every letter he writes. Basically identifies the authorship. I'm the author. I, Paul. Okay? An apostle of Jesus Christ. Who am I writing to? I'm writing to the Ephesians. Although in the earliest manuscripts to Ephesus is not there. So it may have been a circular letter. We're not actually sure. 
Nevertheless, he identifies the recipients and then he blesses them. He gives them a greeting. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very typical Pauline greeting. And yet, in those very simple words, he at the same time indicates how God makes it possible for us to meet our daily challenges. Because Paul, in many respects, is using it as a, as a biography of his own life to talk about how God has done that for him. I trust I'll be able to convince you that that's the case, that you won't feel as though somehow I'm uh, twisting the meaning of Scripture here, but that in fact there is a very legitimate reason for the things I'm about to say. Paul begins uh, his letter, as he often does, by identifying himself as the author. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And at the very same time, in these words, he gives us a sense about the source of the strength that God provides us for meeting life's challenges. And it's important to remember, right at the outset, where Paul is at. Okay, Paul, when he writes this letter, is chained to a Roman guard in prison in Rome. At the same time, He recognizes that he has an ongoing responsibility to the Ephesian Gentiles, these these new Christians who are being uh, brought into the faith, who are being raised up, and he still has the requirement of God laid on him as an apostle to do everything that he can do to foster that growth, to foster their maturity, to foster peace within the church, because there are a lot of Jews in that church as well. And the Jews and the Gentiles, as you know, from many of Paul's epistles, often didn't quite get along so well. So Paul's got this tension. Here I am, I'm chained to a Roman guard. At the same time, I have this responsibility that's a thousand miles away. How do I deal with that? That's a challenge. And yet he understood that God provided both his word and his will that could strengthen Paul for that. Now let me show you what I mean by that. Jesus Christ had called Paul to be his apostle. What that means is consequently that when Paul spoke, when Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and spoke or wrote, he was speaking literally the very words of Jesus Christ. And he spoke with that very same authority. He wasn't speaking for himself. He wasn't trying to build up a church in his own image. He wasn't trying to to gain converts. He wasn't trying to promote his own ideas. When Paul spoke, he spoke on the authority of the Lord God. And there he found the strength that he needed and the encouragement that he needed. Because as you know, when Paul preached, he got into trouble. Right? People followed him all over Asia Minor, persecuting him, beating him, throwing him into jail, trying to ambush him and kill him. They hated him. And what gave him the strength to continue to face those challenges day after day and month after month and year after year? But the certainty that it wasn't about him. But that when he spoke, he spoke the truth of God And the power of God accomplished what God wanted to do through it. Now, what does that mean for you and I? Well, it means that the moment we think, gee, that's nice for Paul, 
But what does that mean for me? Well, it means essentially the same thing. That when you and I, when we share the truth of God, no matter what we're doing, maybe we're refuting error, maybe we're trying to evangelize a friend, maybe we're uh, 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 trying to encourage somebody, or simply explain the truth of God to someone. Whenever we're sharing biblical truth or biblical principles, it's not about us. It's not our opinion. It doesn't somehow rest on our logic. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that the truth of God and the power of God remains the same for us as it did for Paul. And that our confidence when we do these things, whether we're talking to a large group, whether we're sharing with a friend in the wee hours of the night, the truth of God remains powerful to accomplish all for which he sends it. And so for us, there's this great encouragement. There is strengthening in that. The other thing is that Paul found strength also knowing that he was doing God's will. Remember, there was a time when Paul himself pursued and persecuted Christians, right? He chased them down, threw them into, Christ, uh, threw them into prison, stood there holding the garments of those who uh, stoned uh, Stephen to death. He was a bad guy. So what gave him the right? What gave him the right to speak the gospel? It was because God had called him to do it. Paul couldn't say, well, you know, based on my history, I... uh," Well, no, based on his history, he had nothing to stand on. Right? He'd been a persecutor of Christ. How was it that he could now preach Christ? He could preach Christ because God had called him and told him to do it. That it was the will of God for him to have been converted to the truth and to now begin to share Jesus Christ. And brother and sisters, that's, that's our same hope too, isn't it? When people look at us and they say, well, you know, Jer, I remember when. You know, you weren't so uh, upstanding yourself in times past, or last week for that matter, what gives you the right to stand before these people this morning and preach the word of God? (laughs) Certainly I can't stand before you on the basis of my own character or my own holiness. I stand here and I preach because God requires it of me. And when you share the word of God with people, You don't do it on the basis of of who you are, but on who has sent you. And the fact is that God has required every single one of us, at some point or other, to share the gospel, to share the truth with people. And God's call to do that doesn't somehow catch him by surprise that we've done certain things or been a certain kind of person. He knows that. But he sends us anyway, because it's not based on us, but upon his call to us. Well, Paul goes on now, and he identifies the recipients of the letter with these words. He says, to the saints who are at Ephesus, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now here he begins to um, acknowledge, really, that there's a lot of opposition to the gospel in the world. When Paul says that his letters to the saints in Ephesus, uh, we tend to miss the real significance of that. 
If you want to put it in sort of modern language, you might uh, say, uh, uh, to the saints who are in Iran, okay? Or to the evangelicals who work at MTV, right? There aren't many Christians in Iran, right? They're a huge minority. There are probably very few evangelicals who are working today for MTV, although that's, that's a guess. Maybe it's full of them, I, I don't know. <laughs> the simple fact of the matter is that Paul is saying, you are so severely outnumbered that it's incredible. See, Ephesus was probably the fourth or fifth largest city in the world at that time. It was enormous. And Paul's essentially saying there's this tiny group of people called saints who are surrounded surrounded by people who are pagans, who could not care less about the gospel. And he says the odds are really against you. There was a missionary once who was uh, going to Calcutta to minister. And the first time he flew over the city, he looked down and he was absolutely aghast at the mass of humanity, how large the city was. And he just, he was so struck by, by the thought, how in the world can I possibly go down there and have any kind of effective ministry at all? With all of those millions of people. When somebody asked him how he continued on, he said, the thought occurred to me, he says, was that God was in Calcutta ahead of me. <laughs> that God was in Calcutta ahead of me. That God is in Greenfield ahead of me. The God is in Shelburne and Miller's ahead of me. And Paul had that same certainty that God was in Ephesus ahead of him. And he should know. Because at one point he ministered there for 18 months. He knew the problems. He knew that they were under Roman rule. And he knew that the emperor liked to be worshipped. And that many of the people there did the others, the hell went to the temple of Diana and worshipped with the cult prostitutes. It was a rich port city. There's materialism everywhere. They had LCD TVs and they had everything. Okay? They didn't miss a trick. This city was powerful. It was rich. It was full of pleasure and possessions. And if you didn't like the sordid side of things, you could go over to the kind of sophisticated side. Because there was politics, and there was philosophy, and there was the academy. It was all the good stuff, the positive stuff. But it doesn't matter which side you find your idolatry on. They're both as poisonous. One's as bad as the other. And Paul basically said, you're sitting in the middle of something that just is, from a natural point of view, utterly overwhelming. And the question, of course, arises, how could Christians living in that society be called saints? How could they somehow be considered those who have been set aside, holy ones, consecrated ones? Well... That's a good question. But not just for Paul's day, it's a good question for our own. Because our, our nation is just as much idolatrous as Ephesus was. Right? We have, we have exactly the same stuff that the Ephesian culture had. We have the sordid side, 
We have the sophisticated side. We have the materialism. We have the riches. We have it all. And what Christian in our culture is not deeply touched by it? And even influenced by it? Take, take women who stay home, right? To take care of their kids. Are there any who don't at some point think, you know, if I wasn't shackled with these kids right now, I could be making my way in, in, in a world or in a, in, 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 in a hobby or in some pursuit that I really enjoy. Yeah. I'll bet many women do think that, at least once. In a religious culture which just loves to rack up numbers and build bigger buildings and have bigger bands. What pastor has not envied the fact that their parking lot is full and his is empty? Many. In a culture seemingly addicted to sex, how can, how can single Christian men and women hope to remain pure? How do you go out to a bar and that gets sloshed with your friends? See, in a culture where sin is everywhere, in a culture where good is called evil and evil is called good, and Christians live there, it's not as though we can remain untouched by it. It does touch us. But Paul's point is, is it doesn't have to overwhelm us. It doesn't have to take us down. And that's what he comes to in this, this little phrase where he talks about the faithful in Christ Jesus. Because what he does in the, in the Greek text is it's a, it's a very clever parallelism. First, he talks about where they are locally. They're, they're saints in Ephesus, okay? Okay, that's where they are geographically. But then he talks about where they are spiritually. He says, even though you're surrounded by paganism, you are faithful in Christ Jesus. And he talks there about their spiritual condition. And he says that no matter the fact that you are surrounded in in a culture that's awash with sin, that's pervasive with it, nevertheless you are kept by the faithfulness of God who loves you and has called you to himself and will never let you ultimately fall from his hand. There, brethren, is great hope. Because there's, there's not one of us that doesn't at times feel as though we're going down in flames. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that God remains true to us. Because he cannot and will not deny himself the plan that he has to bring all things to completion in Christ and to give Christ a people for his glory and pleasure. Last, Paul greets them, as he is always wont to do. And in this, he recognizes that God's sustaining might is found in grace and peace. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, these people are living in a city that's awash with paganism. They're surrounded by it on every side. They can't help but be touched by it. But what is it that doesn't allow them to be overcome by it? It is the grace and peace of God. It has a power on its own to protect. Now I was, um, why this word came to me? 
and I'm not even sure if I should pronounce it as a noun or something else, but I think it's a noun. So I think I can put an before it. And onomatopoeia, remember that word from, okay? Right? It's a word that basically contains within it the, the, the sound of what it actually is, like uh, splash, kerplunk, okay? Wow, sizzle, gush, okay? Well, we like those words, right? Uh, they, they, they have a way of communicating something about what they are. But what strikes me is that Paul is saying here that grace and peace are strong. Well, they're not onomatopoeias. Nevertheless, they are powerful to accomplish what Paul says they will accomplish. The first is the power of grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great uh, preacher from the last century, uh, said that, uh, in his opinion, one of the great troubles with the uh, modern church was the fact that we are simply uh, so subjective, so interested in ourselves, so so consumed with ourselves. He said uh, the trouble is is that that has meant that we, we just look at ourselves. And what that does is it draws us away from looking at God. We've forgotten God. He says, as a result, we become miserable and introspective, and we sit around taking our spiritual and emotional temperatures all the time. We've talked about that. Gee, how am I I doing now? Okay? We ask ourselves that constantly throughout the day. The message of the Bible from beginning to end is what? It is meant to bring our eyes up. To God. It is meant to to restore us to God, to humble us before God, to enable us to be in a relationship with God, to worship God, to walk humbly before God. It's about God. And one of the great themes of this epistle is that in many respects, it holds us face to face with God. It doesn't let us get away from who he is and what he's done and what he requires of us. And what that all means. In fact, throughout this entire epistle, Paul is talking about this this magnificent grace of God, which, which was his own experience. Remember, Paul was a zealot, right? Paul's a zealot. If you want to read about his conversion, you remember that in Acts chapter 9, it talks about the fact that he was walking down the road to Damascus, right, on his way to pursue and persecute some more Christians, and bang! Jesus appears, blinds him, knocks him down, and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, uh, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus. And Paul, from that very day, began to follow and preach this Jesus as the Christ. This grace transformed him radically. It made him a different man. 
And in this letter, Paul speaks about this grace again and again and again. And not just about grace, he talks about the riches, the lavishness, the generosity of God's grace. Just flowing and flowing and overflowing. Unfortunately, you and I are tempted to measure God's grace by, well, got enough money to meet the bills, or uh, go on vacation, or, uh, you know, feel healthy today, or, you know, a thousand other things that tend to be physical, temporal, and material. But that's not what grace meant to Paul, at least not first and foremost. What it meant to him was the experience of God's love and forgiveness of his sin in Jesus Christ. And is calling him and enabling him to live a new and different life. That's the riches of his grace. <clears throat> then there's the power of peace. See, peace is what enabled Paul to kind of continue to go when he suffered, when his churches were afflicted in their ministry, when his, when his ministry seemed absolutely incapable of overcoming the obstacles that were set before him. And you and I, you and I can experience the same power of peace as well. You don't have to be a pastor to recognize the challenges of ministry to people, right? I don't care if you're working in the health care industry. I don't care if you're working with families. I don't care if you're just working with friends, the school system. It doesn't matter. We all encounter people whose problems are so long-standing so profound, perhaps have gone on for generations, who are so deeply caught in this web of circumstances that we wonder, if can they ever change? Can circumstances ever be different for them? Some of us see young people who are so in bondage to their culture, we wonder if they'll ever stop and hear something different. But Paul understood that it could be different. And his peace came from, again, reach back and look at his, his conversion. Paul understood that God overcame his sin. God overcame his hatred. God overcame his murderous threats against people who loved Jesus Christ. God overcame him. And as he looked at his own life, he recognized that if God did that for me, there is no person, there is no circumstance that cannot yield to the power and purpose of God. And there, there, Paul found great peace to minister no matter what happened. Because he knew that God's work was not dependent on human strength. And you and I don't have to despair simply because we're not strong enough to overcome life's challenges or because we think that we, our words are not powerful enough to affect change in the life of someone else. Because human weakness is not the end of the story. God is at work. And so believers, believers can have peace in what he's doing. I'm going to ask you to reveal something deep about yourself. Okay? I want you to raise your hand if you've seen the animated movie Despicable Me. Amen. 
Okay. The, the 50% that have, that's a, it's a good thing. You'll understand what I'm saying. In the movie Despicable Me, uh, one of the scenes is of a happy suburban neighborhood, white picket fences, well-kept lawns, nice-looking homes. But right in the middle sits this black house with a dead lawn. And nobody suspects that underneath this black house with a dead lawn is this incredibly big laboratory filled with minions who are doing the... Who are doing the work of their leader, Gru. Gru is a mastermind thief. And he has a plan. And his plan is to steal the moon. He knows if he steals the moon, everybody's going to want it back. And they'll give him anything and everything he wants. Gru delights in all things wicked. And Gru has all the toys to win. Right? He's got an arsenal of shrink rays, of freeze rays. He's got battle-ready vehicles for land and air. And everybody he encounters goes down in smoke. He wins all the time. Until the day that he encounters the immense power of three young girls, three little orphans, who don't look at him as a wicked mastermind thief, but see in him the potential to be, of all things, dad. And over the course of the movie, you see their simple, loving, hopeful treatment of him change him From being a man who not only surrounds himself with wicked people and wicked things, but enjoys them. To one who in the end reads them bedtime stories and kisses them goodnight. Because he's been changed by their love. Surrounded as we are by the challenges of life, God gives us everything we need. The three young girls, they didn't seem like much to grew. But they were powerful to affect change. Grace, peace, the truth of God's word. What what do those things seem in the face of our problems and and the circumstances and the issues that we face? Brethren, they are powerful. They are powerful to win the day and to accomplish all that God desires whether it's in our lives or in the lives of other people. Be of good courage. Take what God has given to you. Hold it with joy. And be comforted. Let's pray. Our Father, we are are challenged by the way in which Paul can pack so much in such a few verses. It seems so simple so empty of real meaning or real importance to us. After all, it's just a salutation of a letter. And yet here, Lord, you have included so much for us. We recognize that uh, that's just a foretaste of what's coming in the uh, following chapters of this epistle. 
We pray that you would help us to anticipate it by, by reading it through again and again, becoming familiar with it, conversant with its themes, its great truths, loving its verses. And I pray, Lord, that our time together in this might in some way deeply encourage us and change us to be more men and women that you desire us to be. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.